We are in the middle of a series called Address the Mess. And we have been walking through this, uh, this series that has really walked us into some pretty cool conversation points about this reality that all of us experience a mess. And week one, we really landed on this principle, this idea that we know a mess when we see a mess because we either are or we have been a mess. That each and every one of us has either experienced a mess, are a mess, are in a mess, are a couple steps away from a mess. And so because of that, we recognize a mess when we see one because there's a mess that's in us. And if you were here, I'll recap a little bit for you. Week one, we talked about this idea that whatever set of laws we're under, I don't know if you remember this, I had an umbrella and I popped an umbrella up and I said, we're all under some sets of laws. And whatever set of laws you're under, you don't keep those laws perfectly. Maybe the laws that you're under are just the laws from your parents. And your parents have given you some laws. They said things like, get all your homework done by four o'clock. And you didn't do it. You didn't keep them perfectly. Maybe the set of laws you're under are from a school. And there's a code of conduct that you're under. And they said, here's the laws that you're under. You didn't keep those perfectly. Maybe the code of laws that you're under are just like the Constitution, just because you're American. And, and, and the laws are things like, I don't know, the speed limit. But whatever set of laws you're under, you don't keep them perfectly. In fact, we even pressed in and said, some of us only recognize laws that we've made for ourselves. But even the laws you've made for yourselves, things like, I'll never eat that again. I'll never do that. I'll never go there. I'll never call that person. I'll never take that person's call. Whatever those laws are, even the laws that we've made for ourselves, come on now, we haven't kept those laws perfectly. But the conversation that we had a couple weeks ago was this, that there is a perfect that we recognize and nobody's perfect. And we had a conversation that said, when we start recognizing that there is a perfect and that nobody's perfect, then we have to say someone else must be the author of perfect. And we're just a few steps away from finding God in that conversation. So that was week one. The other thing we pressed into this is that because we recognize that we're all a mess, instead of judging other people's mess, our job is to address the plank in our own eye. If I have an understanding that I have a mess, then my job isn't to go around pointing out everybody else's mess. My first job and my primary job is dealing with the mess that's me. So we spend a lot of time talking about how sometimes other people's messes seem more offensive than our mess. And since their mess is more offensive than our mess, we want to do something about their mess. And the scriptures constantly take us back to our own heart, our own life, our own mess. And then last week, we walked into this tension with John 3, 16 and 17. And we said that God so loved the world. And we said, you could take the word world there and substitute it for the word mess. That God so loved the mess that he sent his one and only son that whoever believed in him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. Because verse 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world or the mess to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And we started talking about how God sent his son, how Jesus loves the mess. And he loves messy people. And matter of fact, I heard one pastor say it this way. You know the old song, uh, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. You could easily say, Jesus loves the little messes, all the messes of the world. And it's true. Jesus loves messy people. And he loves us too much to leave us that way. Jesus loves you right where you're at, 
in your mess, and he loves you too much to leave you there. And so we walked into this conversation about what does Jesus do to address the mess. So let's recap. How does Jesus address the mess in us? Last week we talked about this. And the first thing was very simple. He always led with one invitation, and the invitation was to follow. He always said, wherever you're at now, if you were here last week, this is a recap, but that's okay. We walked through several stories in the scriptures where Jesus walked into conversations with incredibly messy people. Tax collectors, people who had lied and swindled, who had a history of using their power and authority to abuse others. Women who were caught in adultery. People who had lived uh, pluralistic lifestyles and tried one life and then tried another life and it didn't work out. And he walked into these situations and he said, hey, here's what I want you to do. Come follow me. His invitation was always to follow. The second truth that we pulled out of that is he never walked in in a condemning way. As a matter of fact, we looked after time after time after time in the scriptures where he says, I don't condemn you, neither do I condemn you. I didn't come to condemn you. As a matter of fact, if we were really depressed on this, I would just challenge that every time you've experienced condemnation, since we know Jesus doesn't do that, that that's not a tool that he uses, not even to get change in your life. You know who uses that tool? The enemy. The enemy uses that tool. He uses guilt, shame, condemnation, not to get you out of the mess, come on now, but to keep you stuck and to drive you deeper into the mess. So when you start experiencing condemnation, your radar should go off. Bloop. That's not what Jesus is like. No matter who the messenger is, if it's a guy with a microphone standing in the front, your radar should go off. Ding, 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 ding. That is not what Jesus is like. He doesn't condemn. Now here's some truth though. He also never compromised. And we pressed into this tension. He said, hey, come and follow me. And then life change happened and behavior change happened and hearts got transformed and it happened. Genuine change happened. He talked to people and said, hey, go and leave this life. Why? He loved us too much to leave us in the mess. He didn't compromise. What he never did was said, hey, don't worry. It's not really a mess. Don't worry, you know, wink, wink, it's cool. Don't worry about your mess. He never said that. He never said it wasn't messy. So he lived in that tension of, I'm not condemning you. I'm inviting you to follow me. But I also want you to know, you should get out of this mess. It's not what's best for you. And it's messy. And the last thing he did is he did all of this while he remained compassionate. He remained compassionate. He always remembered that there was a person at the heart of that mess. It was never a situation to, to kind of uh, make an example of a scenario. It was always a human, a child of God that he loved, a person in the middle of that. And he always treated the person who was stuck in a mess with dignity, with respect. He was compassionate. He loved the person. So he lays out a model for us when we're walking through a mess. And today we're gonna push a, a little bit more into how do we get out of the mess? Because I want you to catch this true statement about Jesus. Jesus does not want to leave us in our mess. He doesn't wanna leave you in our mess, in your mess. His goal for your life is not just to let you know that you're loved and then leave you stuck in the mess. He wouldn't say come and follow me if his plan was to just jump into the mud and hang out indefinitely there. He wants to take you somewhere out of the mess. Now, this is interesting because, because this creates a problem for some of the ways that we think about our Christian life. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open to Philippians chapter one. I'm gonna be there in just a minute. 
But I was thinking about when I first kind of became a Christian. Now, I didn't go to church when I was uh, younger very much. When I was really young, my parents used to take me to a Spanish-speaking church. My grandparents, I'm sorry, used to take me to a Spanish-speaking church, but I don't speak Spanish. So I had no problem when people were talking about, you know, uh, uh, speaking in tongues or foreign languages or things like that, because everything in church needed an interpretation for me, right? Everything had to be explained. So my job at church was to just be quiet, right? That was my job. If I could sit relatively still and be quiet, that was church. And if I was good, we got chicken nuggets. And if I was rowdy, we got hot dogs. That was church. All I knew about church growing up. Now, later... My family, uh, my mom and stepdad, uh, we became Easter Christian go-to-church people. So we went to church on the big days, the days when Americans went to church because we were American, America, right? And so we went to church. And so you get basically two messages, your Easter and Christmas messages. And then sometimes we'd hang around for a few weeks afterwards. And somewhere in those few weeks afterwards, I got this particular, I was pretty young, but I got this picture of God. I'm gonna kind of show it for you. So I'm gonna have my lovely assistant help me here. And Charlie's gonna hold this whiteboard. Back. Yeah, <laughs> he's all tan from Hawaii. Can you back up another step there? And I'm gonna give you this picture that I got of what it meant to kind of go to church and be a Christian, okay? And maybe you've seen a picture like this. The picture that I got was like this. God's up here and he's watching. I'm gonna draw some eyes, right? Right? And he's watching this direction, okay? There's God. It's kind of this mystical thing. He's up there and he's watching. And then here's me. Now, me in this picture has a lot of hair and I'm taller, right? I'm also skinny, right? And then I'm just cruising along doing life on my path of life. Somewhere along my path of life, I blow it and I sin, right? So what God wants out of me when I do that is to be sorry, right? Because now he's grumpy, right? So the thing is, I gotta be sorry. And if I'm good and sorry, then God is awesome. What he does is he wipes away that frown, right? He's happy because I'm sorry. He wipes all the history of my life away up until that point. And I get a complete do-over. That's the picture that I have, right? So then I start again. And now he's happy again, right? And so then I start again. And I'm cruising along, cruising along. And then, uh-oh, here comes sin again, right? <laughs> right? So all of a sudden, God's not happy anymore. He's grumpy with me because I messed up. I did something I shouldn't do. So I got to be sorry again, right? Then I'm sorry. So God turns that frown upside down, right? And then he takes out the eraser and there goes my whole life again. And I get a complete start over. So here's the problem with this picture that I had of God. Maybe you had this picture of God. Thank you, Charlie. We can put that down. That's the picture I had, right? That's the term clean slate, right? And I had this picture that that's the cycle I went through with God. And it gave me a picture of God that he was kind of like a, a, a bumbling old guy who was really easy to manipulate. That like he wasn't paying attention very well. And all I had to do was say, I'm sorry. And he was forgetful. He couldn't remember things. 
And suddenly I know more things about my life than God knows about my life. I know more things about what's going on on the planet than God knows about what's going on on the planet. Let me give you one more example. Because I'm a video game guy. I was a video game kid. Any video game kids in here? But I grew up when video games were good. Right? When you had to blow in them for them to work. Right? That's when video games were good. And here's the thing about a, a good video game. You'd pop it in and you'd be playing and then you go, oh man, I don't know what's gonna happen next, so I better save. And you'd save your game. And then you'd try something and if you lost, no big deal. You just press reset. Usually you pop the game out, blow on it, right? Pop it back in there and then you'd pick up back where you were before you messed up. Now I'm smarter and the game doesn't know what I already did. So God's like a video game. I'm actually smarter than God. I just install little save points in my life. And if I tank, I just blow on it, press reset, and God goes back. Now, some of you are laughing, but some of you are afraid to laugh because that's the picture you've kind of had your whole life. And I had my whole life a picture of God that I could just manipulate him. He was like an old guy that couldn't remember things or like a video game that if I was smart enough, if I remembered to save before I go tried to conquer the next area or if I remembered to save before I played the next game to make sure Bo Jackson got 300 yards every game, right? Whatever it is, as long as I remembered to do that, I could manipulate God because God couldn't remember things. But then I start growing up in my faith and I start having conversations with people and I'm telling them this. I'm like, dude, why wouldn't you become a Christian? Why wouldn't you want get out of hell free insurance? It's the best thing ever. You don't have to change anything about your life. All you have to do is make sure that you said yes. You don't even have to pay for the get out of hell insurance. It's free. He's such a knucklehead. He's just giving it away, making it rain. He doesn't even realize he's giving away the best thing ever. Get out of hell insurance. Even if you don't believe, at least grab the get out of hell insurance just in case. Why wouldn't you do that? And as I start growing, I'm talking to people and, and, uh, and you know, people's brains are coming online and they're saying things to me like, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because your life is no different than my life except for two things. For an hour and a half on Sunday, you go a place I don't wanna go because I'm watching football, go Niners. And, I lost all of you right there, right? It's perfect. And you feel guilty more than I feel guilty. But basically, we have the same life, except for I get to watch more football and I don't have to feel guilty. So why would I want that thing? And the problem is, that's how I believed God was for years and years and years and years and years. And then I started just testing that against some basic scripture and logic. And I start reading the Bible and I start going, God seems a lot smarter than I thought he was. He seems a lot more interested in personal relationship. He doesn't seem as easy to just snow over. This is confusing because the picture of God I have, he's not smart. And this guy, he certainly is at least smart. And then I started thinking, I wonder if God ever reads the Bible. Do you think God knows the Bible? Because it is impossible to put together, like if God forgave David and the David and Bathsheba stuff, does he flip through the Bible every once in a while and go, are you serious, David? 
right? Because he forgot about it, but then it's written down and he runs into it and he's like, what happened here? You see where that, that, that line of thinking begins to fall off the rails. Because if I believe that God is not personal and that my whole job is just to make sure he's smiling and not frowning at me, that I'm sorry enough, that's a very shallow and basically untrue picture of who God is. And the cool thing is that the true story is way better than that. It's way better than that. So let's get into the word a little bit here. I'm in Philippians chapter one. And it's funny because if God is this befuddled old man, then my life as a Christian is just a bunch of, I mess up, I'm sorry, I do over, I mess up, I'm sorry, I do over, I mess up, I'm sorry, I do over, I mess up, I'm sorry, I do over. And Paul is writing a letter to Christians who have now been Christians for about 10 years. He started this church and they're living their Christian life and he's writing them a letter and he's in prison. Now, what's funny is this church got started from Paul while Paul was in prison. And so he's kind of come full circle over the course of 10 years. He was in prison. God busted him out of prison. These guys heard about Paul, heard the story. They started becoming Christians. He went on the road and he never came back. So for 10 years, he's been the church founder, the church planter, but he hasn't got back to Philippi, the Philippians where he's writing to. So he's writing them a letter, only this time he's in prison again. But now he's in prison in Rome. And the person who's in charge, the emperor of Rome, is a guy named Nero. Now, Nero's name has popped a few times since Easter, if you've been with us, because Nero's a pretty important figure in history. He's the first person who really persecuted the Christians at this level. He's in charge of Rome. Rome burns, and he blames it on the Christians. And since he blames that on the Christians, the Christians end up getting fed to wild animals, and they've made sport of, and they're just getting... So it's not a good thing to be in prison while Nero is the emperor, especially in Rome, it's probably not going to end too well for Paul. But Paul's writing this letter to a church that he planted 10 years before to believers who have been trying to walk with Jesus for the last 10 years. And here's the thing you should know about the letter of Philippians. It is filled with words like joy. And it's one of the things, if you're ever just down and you just need to read something encouraging, read Philippians. It's amazing the picture of hope and joy that gets put into our souls when we spend time with Paul's letter that he writes from prison to other believers that he loves. And so this is what he writes to them as they are going through this journey of trying to figure out how to live like someone who knows Jesus, even though things can get messy. I'm in Philippians chapter one. I'll start in verse three. Paul says this, I thank my God every time I remember you. That's a pretty cool thing to say. I think about you, and when I think about you, the first thing I do is, God, thanks. I think about Charlie, and I'm like, God, thanks for Charlie. Thanks for that big beard. <laughs> he goes, every time I remember you, verse four, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because, and I love this, of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, if you've been here as long as I've been here, the very first message that I preached here, we preached out of this. We talked about partnership. We talked about how the way that the kingdom of heaven is designed to work here on earth is we're partners. We're co-workers. We're co-laborers, right? No one is a customer. We're all co-workers. That's how this thing works. And you know this, if you've had any kind of job that deals with customers, 
and you've had coworkers, you know you have a different relationship with coworkers than you do with customers. The coworkers are your people. We're together, we're in this together, right? Now maybe we're fighting, you know, because we're acting like family, but we're still in this together, especially in terms of the customers. Customers you have a totally different relationship with. And Paul's saying, even though for 10 years we haven't been traveling in the same circles, when you do the thing God's designed you to do, when you be a follower of Jesus, when you grow in your relationship with God, when you serve the way that God's designed you to serve and you do your part, you are now a coworker with me. No amount of distance and space changes that. Now, this is important because for 10 years he's been gone. And this is the kind of time when it wasn't easy to just travel everywhere. So he's the founding pastor, but he doesn't have the ability to just come back. He has to send him a letter. And as he sends him a letter, he says, you know what? I am so pumped that you hear God and obey. We're co-workers when we do that. We're partners. Here we call that living united. We call that living united. We're all connected to the body and we all do the part that we're designed to do. Then we get to verse 6. Verse six, verse six is gonna wreck us a little bit today. If you're a note taker, if you're a Bible highlighter, you should highlight this in your Bible. You should take this note. You should double tap it on your app. Unless your app talks when you double tap it, don't do that. Verse six of Philippians chapter one, Paul says something incredible here. He goes, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. There is so much here that we're gonna break down. He says something incredible. First he goes, you guys are awesome. I love you. Every time I think about you, it fills me with joy. Every time I think about you guys following Jesus, it makes me excited. I thank God for you. I'm so excited that we're partners. I'm so excited. And he knows that they're not perfect. He's just excited that they're on this journey with Jesus like he's on this journey with Jesus. He's excited that they're having the same kind of experiences that he's having. And he says, hey, I want you to know something. First off, I am confident. Now the word for confident is a big word for him to say. If you break that word down, essentially it only shows up a few times in scriptures because it has the implication of being a hundred percenter. I'm a hundred percent sure on this. I'm a hundred percent confident. When I'm confident, it's all or nothing. Charlie's sitting right here. I'm like 99% sure. I can see him. I can touch him. Yeah, that's Charlie. 99.9. I'm pretty sure he's there. Paul's saying, I am 100% confident about the thing I'm about to say. Why can he say he's confident? Because on his journey with God, this has been true every single time. His experience with God, this has been true every single time. What he's about to say, he's like, this is something you can have full confidence in, right? Every time I think about you, I get excited. I pray, I thank God. It gives me joy. And I am confident 100% because of my experience that what I'm about to say is an every single time thing, right? He goes, being confident of this, that he, uh-oh, who's he talking about when he says he? He's talking about Jesus, right? He's talking about God. He's saying, he's saying he, someone else, someone other than himself and other than the people he's writing to, he's talking about God. He's saying, I am incredibly confident that he, God, sets into motion your life. This incredibly strong language. Now, now here's the thing. He is saying that there is someone who is authoring your life, and that it's he, that it's God, that it's him. Here's how, uh, here's how it shows up at other places in scripture. Um, Luke, when he's writing down Peter's uh, words in Acts chapter three, he says that talking about Jesus, he, Peter's talking to uh, 
a bunch of, uh, uh, of Jews at the temple and he says, you killed the what? The author of life, but God raised him from the dead. He's saying he is the author. He's the one who writes the story, who tells the story. The author of Hebrews says it this way. I love this picture. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. This is amazing. The author and the perfecter of our faith. Paul's saying, I am incredibly confident that the author, the perfecter of our faith, Jesus in heaven began something in you. I am incredibly confident, not that you did this, but that he did this. Let's go back to that verse, verse six. He says, I'm very confident in this, that he who began a good work in you. So who began it? Yeah, God did, Jesus did, right? He began it, he's the author, he's the perfecter, he's the one who does the work, he's the one who wrote the story. And then Paul says, he began something in you. When did he begin it? When did he begin it? He began something in us, when did he begin it? Well, let's take a look through scripture and see when he began stuff. Jeremiah says it this way, Jeremiah chapter one, he hears a word from the Lord, verse four. It says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, check this out, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. What is God telling Jeremiah there? He's saying, I literally start authoring the story of your life before you pop into the womb. That there's already a thing, a story. The great, author. I love the creativity of God. Right? I love that he depicts himself as an author, as someone who creates masterpieces, as a potter who designs clay. Right? He's artistic and it's beautiful and he's a creator. And here's Paul saying, I am so confident. Every time I think about you, it fills me with joy because I am 100% confident that God, who is the author, who is the creator, who is the designer, began something in you. He had a plan, a purpose for your life. He started your story before you even knew you were gonna be in your story. He started your story. He began something in you. What did he begin in you? Back to verse six. He began a good work in you. Well, what's a good work? Well, John chapter six, I think verse 28, I don't have it up there. They asked Jesus, they say, hey, what's the work? that God requires. And Jesus says, well, the work is to believe in the one who he sent. So what is this picture of God's work? He's saying, hey, God, I am 100% confident that God, who's the author of your life, began a story for you before you were even born that involved you learning to believe in him. Do you see the narrative? That's so rich. There's so much in there. He's like, he started this story for you. And the work he wanted you to do had everything to do with your believer. Not your behavior. We're not to behaviors yet. To your believer. He was concerned about that internal thing in you that believes. He began a good work in you. And then listen what he'll do. He'll carry it on, verse six, to completion. Now we gotta break that word completion apart because it's pretty awesome. The Greek word there, I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation. It's epiteleo, epiteleo, right? And it literally means this. It means to accomplish, to finish, or to perfect. So carrying it on means accomplish, 
finish or perfect. So who accomplishes the work, the believer piece in you? The person who began it. God does. He says, there's a process that you're in and it's your believing piece and the author of your life, the perfecter of your life will give you what you need to complete it. He'll do the work. He'll do the stuff. He's involved. So here's some truth that you have to realize. We're all in process. We're all in process because he says he'll carry it on to completion till he finishes it in the day of Christ Jesus. And what's the day of Christ Jesus? It's either when he shows up and we meet him in the air, and that's amazing, or it's when we go there, which is also amazing because your time on earth is done. He's saying until you're face-to-face with Jesus in that way, you're gonna be in process. And that process was already written for you and for your life from the very beginning. And you're gonna walk through that process. And that process is connected to your believer, to you growing as you believe. And he's gonna complete that work in you all the way up until, so he's gonna be in that process with you all the way up until you're face-to-face with Jesus. Here's the thing you have to understand about growth. Growth takes time. Growth takes time. And maturity is a process. Now, here's how I know this is true. About 15 years of youth ministry. You cannot force or speed up maturity. You cannot shake someone into maturity. You cannot grab them by the shoulders and get them more mature. If you could, first of all, there'd be some more mature people and there'd be some youth pastors in prison. Because you couldn't resist if there was an option. There's no way in order to save someone from the pain, right? And you know this is true. You know that people kind of come online and mature at different paces based on their experience because of their story. Not everyone matures at the same time or at the same place. Ladies, you know this is true. You've met some fellas and you're like, come on. When is this maturity gonna kick in, right? Fellas, you know this. You've also met some fellas. And you're like, come on. When are their brains going to come online? When is this maturity thing going to kick in, right? Now I'm a parent now, and you, and you see this when you have kids, right? There's different kind of kids. There's some kids where you can go, hey, don't touch that. It's hot. And they're like, whew, good. Thanks for the heads up. And there's other who go, what? <laughs> right? Maturity and growth takes time. And some people come online faster and in different paces and in different ways than other people. Why? Because it's a story that God's written for their life and they're interacting with God as they grow and he's helping them to come online and they're moving through their life, maturing and growing and they will be in a constant state of maturing and growing until the day of Christ Jesus. Everyone's in process, everywhere, somewhere. You're less mature now, then hopefully you will be at some other time. Even if you think you're relatively mature right now, there's still more room to grow. Why? Because you're not face-to-face with Jesus on the day of Christ Jesus, which is either he showed up or you got there. If you're still here, you're still in process. How does this connect to our messes? Well, because we're having a conversation about the fact that all of us are walking through something and walking through maturity, and all of us are growing. And Paul's writing to people who know Jesus, who've had a relationship with Jesus. He's saying, hey, before I get into this, I want you to know I love you. I thank God every time I think about you. It excites me. We're partners. And I also want you to know that you're not finished yet, that you're in process, that he's working on you. But he's faithful, the things that he's doing to complete them. He cares, and he's in it. 
What is he trying to say? He's trying to say there's an inside part of you that's constantly going to be in process because Christianity is an inside-out faith. It's not behavior modification faith. That's an outside-in faith. An outside-in faith is stop doing that, stop doing this, start doing that, start doing this. And keep on doing it until the inside of you just gets used to that and you just do it, right? It's like how you train a puppy, right? Don't do that. I shouldn't do that to the microphone. Sorry, don't. Right? Some of you, maybe you don't do that. You spray with the water. I don't know how you do it. You just start attacking the outside behavior until the inside brain comes on and says, okay, don't do that. But Christianity doesn't work that way. Our journey with Jesus doesn't work that way. He doesn't just attack the outside behavior. He doesn't even seem overly concerned about the outside behavior. He's very concerned about the heart. And he's definitely concerned about the believer, the soul, the peace on the inside. And he's saying, hey, I started something in there. When you started a relationship with me, when you came online and became aware of my presence, something happened on the inside. I've started something and you don't realize this, but because of my creativity and because I'm the author of all life and I'm the perfecter of all life, I actually started this love affair with you before you even took oxygen into your lungs. You just came online whenever you met me and you've been in process the whole time. And you're gonna continue to be in process as I walk you through this thing. And Christianity is a faith that happens on the inside and then affects the outside. Jesus keeps on working with us. Verse seven, I'll make this make some sense here. He goes, hey, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you, Paul. So this is how I feel about you. God's working on you. And it makes me excited that he's working on you. He goes, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains, which is kind of funny because he was in chains when he met them the first time and he's back in chains again. I'm in chains or if I'm defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. He's like, I'm part of this. He's working on it in me. And God can testify for how I long for all of you with the affection that's in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? He's saying, I can say this honestly to you because I'm experiencing it. I've been in chains. I've been out of chains. I've been contending for the faith. I'm experienced. I'm confident because I know what this is like if you read his other letters he talks a ton about this tension of behavior modification and the work God's doing in him one of my favorite places he talks about it is in Romans 7 I won't take us there right now in Romans 7 7 he says hey you know what the things I want to do I don't do and the things I don't want to do I keep on doing can anybody relate to that I don't want to eat this but I keep eating it right the things I do want to do I want to go to the gym but I don't go to the gym right you can put, insert whatever it is. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I do want to do, I don't, I do do. Wait, here's what's funny. Eventually, I'm going to preach that. I'm going to call it being stuck in the doo-doo. Because that's what he is. He's like, I'm stuck in this cycle of doo-doos. I things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do want to do, I don't do. Paul talks honestly about that. He talks about thorns in his flesh, behavior, things that are in his life that he just that don't remove from him. And he's saying, I with confidence can tell you that God who began something in you is faithful to complete it. You can come through whatever mess you're in right now. You can come through it. Now look at this. This is amazing. He's reigniting, first of all, their confidence too. Sometimes we just need to know people believe in us, right? Sometimes it's just important to know, and it's, maybe this is the thing you need to hear today, and it, it's just totally a, kind of a freebie, but I just want you to catch this. There might be someone in your life right now that if they just knew you believed in, in them, 
and that even though they're in a mess right now, that God wasn't done with them yet, that he'll be faithful to complete it and carry it through them. If they just heard those words from you, it might ignite their faith. And that might be the, the, the ambassador piece that Jesus could invite you to come and do. That's what Paul's doing. He's just igniting their faith. He's like, this is my chance to write a letter to these people that I love and reignite their faith and remind them that even though they're in process, God's not done with them yet. And I'm confident that he will do the thing he's promised to do. He will take them through the mess that they're in right now. Verse nine, that was free. Verse nine. Sorry, I lost it. And this is my prayer. Oh, this is so good. And this is my prayer, he says. So he's already said, Every time I think about you, I thank God. When I do pray for you, it gives me joy. And he goes, you know, I believe God's gonna finish what he's gonna do in you. And I want you to know I have a right to think this way because I've been through so much and I've been there for you and I'm going through chains. And this is how I pray when I pray for you. Because this is my prayer, that you, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. That's amazing. Go back to that first slide here. I wanna walk through that a little bit. This is his prayer. This is what's amazing. This is when we were talking about Jesus loves you too much to leave you in your mess. This is Paul describing what he wants us to experience as we get out of the mess. He's saying, I'm praying for you. And here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that the next time you start to sin, you knock it off and you're really sorry. No, I'm praying that you just wouldn't do that anymore. Your behavior would just change. No, he doesn't pray that anymore either. He says, I'm praying that your love would abound, that it would grow, that, that as you began to love more and more, it would activate in you a desire to get more knowledge. And that knowledge would bring more depth of insight. Just like I didn't have a lot of knowledge when, I, when my faith was this, this whiteboard kind of faith, right? And somehow along the line, I had to grow in love, my love for God, my love for others. And it drove me to more knowledge and it forced me to ask some questions, right? And all of a sudden my depth of insight grew and I was able to discern more. And this is where the behavior starts to change. Because I'm able to discern more, because I'm able to figure out what's true and what's not, what's best, then I begin to become more pure and more blameless. I start to be more like Jesus. Now, here's what I want you to catch. All the things he's praying for are inside things. They're not outside behavioral things. He's not saying, hey, I pray that you'd get a hold of your mouth and you'd stop cutting people down with your words. He doesn't say, hey, I pray that you just get a hold of that anger and deal with it. I pray that you just cut loose that addiction. I pray that those are all exterior things. Does he want that for you? Yes, he doesn't want to leave you in the mess. But the strategy isn't behavior modification. The strategy is to grow you on the inside. Christianity is an inside out faith. That's why we sang that song. From the inside out, Lord, my soul cries out, right? What is that? What are, we, what are we declaring when we sing that? We're saying something on the inside of me wants to connect to you, God. And as that happens, my love expands. My love grows. Who I am expands and grows. And I get more knowledge and I get more discernment. I become more aware of what it's like to be like you, Jesus. And it changes things because as I do that, suddenly my desire to be blameless and pure, to have fruit in my life that's evidence of Christ, becomes larger and it pulls me out of the mess. 
That's what Jesus means when he says, hey, come follow me. He doesn't say, follow me, like Simon says, right? It's not a giant game of Simon says, right? Isn't that funny? We could play instead of Simon says, Jesus says. And it would be very humbling because it would sound very <laughs> manipulative. But we do that. Jesus says, don't drink. Jesus says, don't smoke. Jesus says, don't spend too much money. Jesus says, Jesus says, right? We play Jesus says with a behavior modifier. And that's not, that's never the story. The story is Jesus says, follow me and grow in love and grow in wisdom and grow in discernment. And as that happens, you'll actually grow in holiness and you'll become more and more like me and it will take you out of the mess. Dude, that's awesome. That is so much better than just wipe the board and oh, let's pretend I didn't see that. That is so much more personal. That is so much more for our good so that we can grow. Christianity is about growing. We're in a, it's a maturing process and system. The goal is maturity and growth. It's not behavior modification, but that comes as we grow. Our kids, right, they don't touch the stove anymore when it's hot as they grow. Because on the inside, something's come online. It's not behavior modification. And I love this conversation that he says, this is my prayer. I was really challenged this by this when I, was, when I was studying and prepping this. And I was like, God, how are my prayers? Do I pray big things? When's the last time you prayed that God would uh, make your love abound more? Is that in your prayer uh, cycle of prayer? Do you spend some time, God, how my love to abound more? When's the last time you say, God, help me to grow more in knowledge and depth and insight? When's the last time you said, God, help me to discern what is best? Help me to be more pure and more blameless. When's the last time your prayers sounded like that? I'm not condemning, I'm just asking the questions because I was asking these questions. You know what my prayers sound a lot more like? God, help me with this thing I'm stuck with. God, thanks for the food. God, where are my kids? <laughs> what are they doing? God, help me find this thing before I lose my mind. <laughs> God, I'm sorry for losing my mind. <laughs> right? And I wonder if sometimes we shrink up. Does God care about it? Yes. Is that okay? Yes. But maybe we're praying too wimpy of prayers. And we don't get serious about our prayers until there's catastrophe. Until someone says, I'm sick. Or the doctor says, I have news. Or something. And then, there's, and then suddenly we try to jump from these, come on, I'm just these wimpy prayers. We try to jump into these heavy, extreme prayers. And our faith muscles, like the, the journey, aren't, they're just not connected. And Paul says, this is how I pray for you. I pray that your love will just keep growing like a muscle, you'll start working it out and it'll bound and it'll be larger. I pray that you'll get wiser and that you'll grow and you'll be stronger. When's the last time you prayed like that? Let me ask you this question. What do you pray for when you pray for you? What do you pray for when you pray for you? See, this is how Jesus helps us get out of the mess. This is how we follow him. This is the picture that, he, that the scripture paints for us to walk through when we're stuck, when we've messed things up. And some of the things we messed up, they're our fault. Come on. We talked about that last week. Most of the messes I experienced are my fault. 
Somewhere along the line, there was an opportunity to say no. Somewhere along the line, someone gave me input and said, don't do that, that's gonna be dangerous. And you're like, nah, it'll be fine, and you did it. All right, somewhere along the line, you said no to a voice of wisdom or something. Most of the messes you've experienced are your fault. And here's Jesus saying, let me help you get out of the mess. This is what it looks like to follow me. One, just believe, come on now, just believe that I'm the author and the finisher, that I'm with you, that you're in process. Believe that I will walk you through this, connect to me on that, and then start praying that your love would grow, that your knowledge would grow, that your wisdom and insight would grow, that you would become more alive and more pure and you become more fruitful. And as you walk and change and transform on the inside, you're gonna notice you're out of the mess. You don't even know how you got out. You just started, started trying to walk after Jesus and you're like, whoa, I haven't been in that mess for a long time. Now you might be in a new mess, but you're a new person and you're stronger. And now this season of mess is, is all new and you're walking through it and God's like, hey, same principle applied. Over here was a financial thing. Now it's a relational thing. Here it's a physical thing. There it's an emotional thing. We're gonna walk through those messes and the same principles apply. I'm the author. I began it in you. I'm faithful to complete it and perfect it and finish it in you. You gotta stay connected to me. And the more that you grow and the more that your love abounds, the more that you begin growing, the more you follow me, the outside external things start falling into place the way I designed them for you to. And that's the picture that he gives us. Does that mean everything works out? Well, Paul's gonna die in prison. But he says, hey, I'm gonna keep doing the same thing over and over again, trusting God till I meet him face to face. And then he meets him face to face. And he's like, hey, God's like, high five. Bravo, you made it. So what's the promise then? Well, here's the thing you can count on. You're gonna be in process, but you can count on his presence in the process. Is it gonna be easy? Of course not. It wouldn't be a real mess if it was easy. If you could just get out of it on your own, it wouldn't be a real mess. But you can count on his presence in the process. It says, I'll be close. I'll be near. The promise is always the presence. You can count on my presence in the process. <laughs> Sometimes I think we get into a mess and we think the only way to get out of the mess, the only way to get back into his presence is to get out of the mess first. We get into a mess and we're like, okay, God's far away from me now, so I gotta clean this up so I can get close to God again. Do you know that's a lie? It's a lie from the enemy. Last week we talked about how when someone gets caught, we always think, well, that's not true repentance. But then we look at the scriptures and everyone who repented basically got caught first. And we're like, well, it only counts if you didn't get caught. It's like, okay, well, everyone got caught and they repented. So that's, that sounds really good. Like maybe a psychologist might think that's, that's fair or maybe just in your anger you feel that's fair. But the reality is we all get caught. And God's mercy extends to people who are in messes. It extends to people who are in messes and his promise is that his presence will always be there. And your job isn't to clean up the mess and then go look for Jesus. Your job is in the mess to start following him because his presence is right there. Let's take a look at this.
Would you stand with me? I just, I like that picture because no matter what mess or circumstance you're in, the promise is always the presence. I want you to hear this. Uh, it's the last sentence that Jesus speaks. It's the last sentence of the Gospel of Matthew anyways, that he speaks in the Gospel of Matthew. And we always read the whole section, and I think we miss just how he punctuates it. Because Matthew 28, verse 20, the last sentence that he shares is just simple. And he says this, he goes, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He could have said till the day of Christ Jesus, but he is Christ Jesus, so it makes more sense for him to say till the end of the age. That's always the promise. Wherever you're at in the mess, that he'll be with you. Wherever you're at on the journey, that he's with you. He expects you to be in process. As a matter of fact, he guarantees that you will continually be in process until that time. But while you're in process, he'll be with you. He'll be with you. And Paul prays that that will ignite in you a desire for your love to grow, for your wisdom to grow, for your knowledge to grow, for your discernment to grow. So why? So that you can become more like him because that's what following him is. And the more you become like him, the more it pulls you out of whatever the current mess is. So some of you, that mess has been around for a long, long time. And the problem has been you have played a game of behavior management instead of letting Jesus come into the mess with you and lead you out of it because you think you're the author of your mess. And you think you're the author of your story. You think you're the key player in all of this. And Jesus is like, come on, bro. Come on, sis. I was there before. You were in the womb writing the story of your life. Your mess doesn't surprise him. He's not shocked by it. What might surprise him is you're convincing yourself that you can pull yourself out or listening to condemnation telling you you belong in there or you deserve what you're getting, whether you're keeping that condemnation on yourself or it's coming from someone else. What might surprise him is that you just don't want to step out and trust him in this. But maybe today, the one thing that always did surprise him in the scriptures, and I love this picture, the only thing that ever astonished Jesus in the scriptures was faith and lack of faith. When he ran into great faith, the scripture says he was amazed at their faith. And when he ran into no faith, it says he was amazed at their lack of faith. It's the only two places that Jesus is amazed. Maybe today it's time for one kind of amazing to shift to another kind of amazing. He's been amazed at your lack of faith, staying in the mess. And today he wants to be amazed at your great faith as you trust him. Say, God, I'm gonna give you my mess. So here's what I'm gonna do. This might be unusual or uncomfortable for some of you. And for that, I'm kind of sorry. But because I believe that this is an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to do some transforming type things in you, I'm not totally sorry. I'm a little sorry for your discomfort, but I'm excited for what's about to happen for you. Because here's what we're gonna do. Jeff's going to just kind of play softly, and I'm going to invite you to be a little uncomfortable. You don't have to do anything out of coming out of your seat or anything more than where you're at right now, but I just want to invite you to have this conversation in a spiritual way, in a prayerful way to say, Jesus, I just want to invite you into my mess, and here's my mess, and would you just give me any knowledge, any insight, any information that I might need so that I can start walking out of the mess. And I'm just going to believe that the Holy Spirit's going to speak to some hearts 
And some of you are gonna get the first step out of your mess that you haven't got. And for some of you, it's gonna be forgiving somebody. For some of you, it's gonna be making some different choices. For some of you, it's gonna be just trusting God. I don't know what it's gonna be, but I'm gonna invite and just for a couple of minutes, it's gonna be awkward silence in here as you listen. And then I'm gonna pray and then I'm gonna close. I'll pray to get us warmed up, okay? And then I'm gonna let you do it. So Jesus, we trust you. And we trust that you said you're gonna send the Holy Spirit as a counselor that's gonna give us insight, that's gonna give us direction, that's gonna help us and be present with us, that that's who the Holy Spirit is. And so we invite the Holy Spirit right now to speak to our hearts and to our lives to give us insight right in the middle of our mess. So I pray in the name of Jesus that you would just do that. And so wherever you're at right now, I just want you, however you do that, to begin to just talk to God and say, here's my mess, and then just listen. If you're still talking, he's, he knows already, so you can stop talking. Just listen. just a moment. I'm going to pray and close. But before I let you get out of here, I want to challenge you on something. If God's speaking something to you, this is really important. You need to write it down. I don't care if you write it on a piece of paper. I don't care if you put it in a note in your phone. You need to, you need to lock it in because you'll come out of here and the enemy's goal will be to like, a, like the raven in the sea to just steal it away before it has time to connect and take root, okay? So, so when I'm done talking, you know, I want you to be social and stuff, but if you need to take 30 seconds and write it down, write it down. If you need to put it in your phone, put it in your phone, whatever you need to do. And here's going to be my prayer for you guys this week. I'm going to pray like Paul prayed, that your love would abound, that you would grow, that you would grow in wisdom and insight. And I'm going to pray for you to do what we just did right now for, you don't have to do it any longer than this. That was just a couple minutes. Might've felt like eternity for some of you who are just like, ah, it's awkward, but it was just a couple minutes to pray like this for a couple minutes every day this week to just say, God, here's my mess. Do you want to speak to me in my mess? Do you want to give me some insight, some direction? Is there some, right? And it's not going to be, you know, behavior modification. It's going to be inside modification. Now, it may lead to some behavior modification. Something might spring up. You might go, oh, crud, I'm going to have to go apologize, and I don't want to apologize. It might be, oh, crud, I'm going to have to go tell the truth somewhere where I haven't been telling the truth. Oh, crud, I'm going to have to go to that coworker and admit, you know, I've been behind their back saying some things. I've been gossiping. Whatever it is, I don't know. God may surface that in you, and then that's the behavior that following Jesus looks like that. It may, it may spur some of those things. But this is, come on, this is how he completes the work. This is how he drags us out of the mess as we follow him. It's what brings freedom for your life and for your soul. And I want that for you. As your pastor, I want that for you. God wants that for you. So that's what I'm gonna be praying. I'll do my part. I'll be praying that that's happening. And I'll also do my part. I'll be doing it. And now you do your part. You talk to God every day for just a couple, a couple minutes. And then you be quiet. And you let him speak and you see if he doesn't
grow and mature you through the mess. God, thanks. Thanks for being faithful. Thanks for caring enough about us that you love us when we're in the midst, but you love us too much to leave us stuck there. God, you're so faithful. You'll take us through the mess and into freedom and into life. And then we get to just stay in process, growing and becoming more like you every day. I pray that our hearts are challenged. I pray on the inside, on the inner man, on the inner person, that we would become more like you every day. Thanks for addressing the mess in us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.